Welcome to the Elevation Podcast. This podcast seeks to explore everything from mental, physical, and spiritual well-being. We aim to help you increase your performance, recovery, and optimization with your mind and body. Get ready to get elevated. to the fifth episode of the Elevation Podcast. With me today is Dr. Jeff Zahavich. Um, Jeff is a kinesiology instructor at Dalhousie University and has a long list of qualifications. I'm just going to rattle them off here in no particular order. Um, he has his PhD with Dalhousie in health sciences, his master's in kinesiology from the University of Calgary, his Bachelor of Science in Health Promotion, his Bachelor of Science in Kinesiology. He is the owner and director of Kinesic Sport Lab. Um, he's a certified exercise physiologist, an endurance coach, a certified professional coach, a certified, uh, and he's a provincial coach for Triathlon Nova Scotia. Um, did I miss anything there? Anything else? No, there's a few titles, but we just, just go with Jeff. Yeah. So, um, who is Jeff? Why don't you tell the people who you are? Other than that, I just listed sort of the credentials you have, but other than that, what do you like, what do you like to do? What kind of led you to doing all this school? Yeah. So I guess kind of most importantly, the stuff that's not mentioned is I've got, uh, I'm a dad, so I've got two little girls. Um, and I've got an extremely understanding and patient wife, Ashley. Um, so besides the, the family side of things, uh, yeah, I, I run, I bike, pretend to swim, lift weights, just try to stay healthy and, and upright. And, uh, yeah, I guess the whole idea behind school is it just one degree kind of led to the next, opened up doors, closed others, and, uh, and still just trying to figure it out. But I'm, Happy with my current situation at Dow as an instructor, and we'll see what the future brings. Sweet. Yeah, that's great. I feel like I'm heading down a similar path. That grade 24. Yeah, I'm on, I'm on track. I'm going into grade, uh, well, seventh year of university here, so. Yeah. It adds, it adds up. up. It adds up quick. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so, like, what type you have uh, done some endurance races and stuff? I know you've mentioned that before, like what types of races have you done yourself um, in general and what are sort of the more intense ones you've done? Uh, so racing, uh, well, I've, like with, with the, the babies now, it's, it's been a little bit, it's probably been about four, four years since I've actually done anything all that competitive. Um, I guess my, my first kind of passion when I first started on this road was, uh, was mountain biking. 
um, and getting into some of the, like the 24 hour endurance races, like 24 hours of adrenaline in Canmore. Um, I've done like trans Rockies, which is like a, a multi-day stage race that rips through, um, West coast, which is pretty cool. Cause I was living in Calgary during my masters, um, dabbled in the world of long course triathlon, never actually made it to the, uh, to the start line, um, because of overtraining and that's, that's, there's no better way to learn than to put yourself through the paces. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I learned what not to do. Um, <laughs> and then all that kind of translated into, into coaching. So basically all my learning experiences have, have basically just shaped how I, how I approach coaching as well. But, um, other races, like I can't count how many marathons, um, I tried my luck recent years with ultra ultra marathons or so trail running. Um, and then just more recently, I guess being a weekend warrior. So if, if time permits and it opens up, it's great to hammer out hundred K on the bike or go for a long run, get lost in the woods for a few hours. That's kind of where I'm at now. Um, nice. and it's super, super random unplanned. It's just whenever time permits. But. Sweet. What like would you say, um, the most intense one that you've that you remember like when you're racing that you're just like this is freaking crazy like yeah, you just said well, some of them are like 24 hour like long like races or multi-day biking ones like what what kicked your ass the most do you that, is there that, anything that stands by, out yeah that would have been the trans rockies the the tr3 oh, okay. so that was that was a pretty epic race like started in panorama BC and then just went over and under and, and around every mountain pass you can imagine. Um, and I was, I did that during grad school, during my masters, um, which as you can imagine, not much, really much time to train or prepare. It was, yeah. it was basically a hail Mary from the time we signed up until the, the last day. Um, at the time I was working at a, an exercise physiology lab in Calgary, uh, TCR sport lab. Um, uh, and the director, a good friend of mine, Corey, Corey Fagan, he was the one who inspired me and motivated me to open up KSL in Halifax. But him oh, and nice. I, him and I kind of tag teamed it. It was a, it was a partner event and, and he was probably as not fit as me, but still fit <laughs> enough to yeah. tackle it. Um, and we did well, like we didn't, we didn't come last, which was pretty cool because some That's of these... Good. Some of these men and women, like they, they train and prepare year round for these types of things. So here we are, we're a couple of Joes and we just threw our, threw ourselves into it and a few bike mechanic issues here and there. I remember actually when, I think it was the third day we were, it was at the end of a time trial and I had, I had just popped like my fifth flat of the day and I think I was running out of tubes and I, I was bonking hard and I remember using a gel and just hammering it back and then not having any spare tubes not having any patches left so we basically like pumped the tube up swapped in the empty gel goo wrap as a patch and the stickiness from the gel we just hoped that it would stick and it did really uh, but in the process of doing that a tandem bike flew by us and the person on the back was actually they were visually impaired so we were like oh wow that's humbling to be passed by a <laughs> <laughs> pretty, but that just shows the caliber of, of the, uh, the athletes that are coming to these events from all over the world, not just Canada or, or even North America. They were like from Spain and Italy and, and you name it. They were, they were there. 
pretty cool. So that, that was probably the most, most intense race I've, I've ever done, like a multi-day. Yeah. Um, How many kilometers roughly do you think that would have been? Uh, I'm trying to think now. Like the first day, I think it was, it was probably close to like an 80K, like 80K first day. And then the second day was a little more relaxed. It was like a, like 35, um, relaxed in terms of, of volume, not necessarily, uh, course design by any means. And then the third day. So we, we, it, we did the three day challenge. It was actually a week long stage race. Okay. Um, but taking time off of school and work was a little bit challenged when you're a, when you're a business owner and a grad student. So we, uh, we did the three day, but then the third day it was a time trial. So I think it was like a 25 K, um, relatively humane course, but still pretty rugged. So, okay. um, how would, uh, yeah. how, how's the setup work for like, I don't know, like endurance racing, like I'm definitely super interested in it, but it's not something I've ever trained for or like have gotten into so much more like yeah. more into like strength training, bodybuilding, functional stuff. But like, I love it all. And so I like learning about it all, but I don't know much about how like that race would be set up. So you said the first day is like 80 K second day is 35. And then the last day is a little less what is the first stage? Like, is it, is it timed or how do you like, do you have a, a sensor on you that like once you cross a, a, a laser or something, it stops your time. Is that how it's done? And then they accumulate the total. Of the yeah. So it, if you're familiar with like the, like the tour de France, for example, like 21 day mountain bike or sorry, road, road, road race. Um, so basically every day leads into the next. Okay. So you would have your, your leader at the end of the day who'd be awarded a, a certain jersey. So the next morning on, on stage two, um, they move to the front of the pack. They get seated right. to the front. They're wearing a, a certain colored jersey so that the announcers and everyone knows who's the leader of the day. Okay. Um, and then cumulatively, so from day to day to day, your time gets moved to the next, the next, the next, and build. So at the end of a, like a week-long stage race, you, you might have a time of like 36 hours and 52 seconds kind of thing. Okay. So it's just, it's from day to day to day. Um, but yeah, so every, every day is timed. Um, in, a, in a course that rugged and that big, um, like we had, we had race plates on the front of a bike and they had like a, a center or a, sorry, a, a sensor kind of built into it. Okay. So as you start the, the, or cross the start line and cross the finish line, it, it sets a timer and start stop kind of thing. Okay. Um, so with technology and, and all the equipment, it makes, it makes timing and management that, that pretty, that simple. Um, Cause some of these races might have like anywhere from anywhere from like 50 to 500 riders. Um, yeah. So it, it can get pretty complicated when you've got someone with an Excel spreadsheet trying to, <laughs> trying to enter in the numbers. So it's, yeah, yeah that's kind of how it works. Technology can definitely help in that situation. Absolutely, yeah, and it's same kind of like with uh, with like a, your your local five k road race or or a marathon even. Yeah. Um, people have these sensors on their shoe, so the moment that you cross over, it triggers it, and the moment that you finish line, it ends it, and then you're there's no discrepancy for time and all that yeah. stuff. Yeah, no yeah. reaction time or anything. Yeah. Um, what would you say? Few parts, I guess, just kind of came to mind here what like would you say your worst injury ever was from like mountain biking or i guess any like overtraining injury or like overtraining versus like a crash 
Um, yeah. And also, how did you balance like maybe rehab or even just training with all the other shit you do, like school, work, yeah. family, all that stuff? So, like, I guess worse injury, and then how sort of you balance rehab and training from all that yeah. stuff? Yeah, it's funny because I I've never actually broken any bones. Um, I've had like, I've been hit by buses, I've been hit by cars, I've crashed, I've threw off dirt jumps, I've hit you name it. I've been I've done it on a bike. But never, never broken any bones. I've had many concussions, um, which have I think have had an impact on me over over the years, just in terms of like trying to remember things and just little things like that. But it's been a, been a number of years since I've had any any more crashes on the head. That said, when it gets really hot and I'm doing any kind of intensity, um, I start to get kind of post concussion syndrome things back. Uh, which is never never pleasant, but again, where I am in this stage of life, rarely am I doing much intensity work these days. Uh, I guess the the worst injury I've ever had though was I was signed up. I was registered for Ironman Canada when I was still in Penticton, BC. Um, I'm trying to remember the year. It must have been 2010, so 10 years ago. I was preparing for this, and. At the time, I was doing my master's exercise physiology. I was coaching at TCR Sport Lab and training for for this race. Um, and there, there, there was a bunch of stressful things going on in my life. Like my, my sister, older sister, was dying of cancer. Um, I, there was some other tensions in family and whatnot. But basically all that is stress, whether it's, it's physical stress from riding, running, swimming, whatever, but stress is stress. And I, I always refer to it as, as, as training load. Yeah. So as an athlete, you need to learn how to accurately quantify the training load being applied. And you've probably heard it before, but you also need to prepare your recovery and, and recovery, recover as hard as you train. Um, that I was not doing. So a typical day, I would wake up at 5 a.m. I would run from like the northeast of Calgary to the southwest, which is where the Mount, Mount Royal University is, because that's where we were offering our, our swim classes or our run classes. So I was, I was running anywhere from like, I don't know, an hour to an hour and a half in the morning to practice, coaching practice with the athletes, so usually a high intensity swim or high intensity run. Um, and then getting on the bus, reversing it, get to campus, get showered, do my school all day, sit, learn, try to learn. And then in the evening I would go down to the, down to the lab and I would teach a high intensity spin class. So sleep was, was not great. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Stress was high. Training stress was high. And then all the other stress. So basically I did that for about six months <clears throat> and then I think it was like Easter morning. I was sitting at the kitchen table and my, my fiance, my wife now came up to me and she's like, what, what's going on? What's wrong with you? And I couldn't catch my breath. Like I was just sitting there huffing and puffing. And she's like, uh, what's Jeff, what's going on here? I'm like, I don't know. I, I can't catch my breath. So we went to emergency um, the doctor didn't know what was going on. They took all of all my vitals, like oxygen, heart rate, blood pressure, took some blood work. And they're like, you're fine. Sent me out the door with a prescription for antacids. I'm like, what? 
what's uh, I don't get it. What, what's what's this gonna do? Jeez. Anyway, that's ca- carried on for about a week. Like it kept getting worse. I just I couldn't catch my breath. Like labored breathing. Were you trying to continue at that point, or was at this point you were just like recuperating? Oh no, I was still training. Like because I was, still, I was still trying. I was, yeah. I was, okay. Yeah, I was coaching. Right, like, I, I right. had to be there for five a.m. Yeah. practice. Um, five a.m. and seven thirty p.m. Still running uh, and stuff, even with all that. Yeah, we didn't have a car, so if I wasn't running, I was riding a bike because okay. in Calgary at the time, like transit was pretty unreliable. So, yeah. like on any given day, I was commuting probably thirty k, whether it was run or bike or walk or whatever. Um, so I was fit. I was super fit, but I was so overtrained. Yeah. <laughs> And then, so this continued on for another week. And I remember sitting in, uh, in another one of my, I was auditing, it was an applied exercise physiology class. And Dr. Neil Eaves, who's now at UBC Okanagan, good friend of mine. Um, he actually came up to me. He's like, he's like, Jeff, you gotta, you gotta, he's like, you gotta get off the crack. He like, he whispered this to me. I'm like, what? Like one, so one pupil was like the size of a dime and the other was a pinprick. And he's like, like you're showing all the signs. And I'm like, what? dude, like, uh, no, never, yeah. <laughs> not even. <laughs> so we had we had a long conversation. He got me in to see some specialists that he worked with at the Foothills Hospital, um, <laughs> and and a number of other other tests that I was actually then being tested for. Like they were like, maybe he has some sort of like. COPD or some other respiratory illness, but yeah, nothing came back other than I was so overtrained to the point that things were just shutting down. Um, went to a naturopath and, uh, well actually went to many doctors, went to a naturopath. Um, and was like, you know what, for the next foreseeable future, um, you can't do anything that's going to elevate your heart rate over like random number, but 120 beats per minute. And I was like, what, what do you mean? <laughs> He's like, you heard me. You're done. So they put me on the pantothenic acid, um, and licorice root extract, which are basically like they counteract elevated blood pressure. And, okay, and yeah. like, when They're, your nervous um, system is shot, they basically help bring you back down. Yeah. Um, so anyway, long story short, I went from training like 40, 50, 60 plus hours a week down to like yin yoga and long walks on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> Complete 180. Um, yeah. And it worked. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It, I got dialed back in. It, it really gave me perspective on what I want to accomplish, uh, as an athlete, athlete, um, and, and yeah, it really did put things into perspective. So that was the last like significant crazy race I've, I've registered for other than like a 50 K ultra marathon, which is like a one day event that doesn't destroy you. Um, so that was probably my most severe <laughs> injury, which again was, it was chronic. It wasn't really acute. It happened over a long term time, but nothing broken. Um, so that Definitely was worse than breaking something in my yeah, exactly yeah, right like and, and and arguably those things like once once you go there you never want to go back um and like i said when we kind of started the conversation that that learning opportunity i've carried that forward to 
every athlete that I work with now, yeah. um, making sure that we're not letting that training load get out of control. They're keeping life in check, knowing that they have all these stresses in life. Um, training should be something enjoyable. And at the time for me, it was becoming, it was not, not comfortable. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't all that enjoyable. So. Sweet. Yeah. yeah. And you need like people, I find it funny. Like I've been, I haven't overtrained, but I've pushed my body to the limit just through like life and, you know, young partying and working out and not sleeping to the point sure. where your, where your body and your mind is just like, all right, well, guess what? We're shutting down now and you're screwed. Yeah. <laughs> it's just such a, it's horrible at, in the moment and while it's happening, but it's such a valuable lesson like to, to hold on to and then also just be able to, to carry forward like coaching or I haven't done a whole lot of coaching yet, but like getting into it, I know that's like going to be a huge thing. Like you got to balance, you can't just go hundred percent all the time. It's going to lead to burnout or worse overtraining or just not enjoying life in general. So balancing right. that recovery, like emotional stress and mental stress is going to contribute to needing more recovery just as much as training well, especially central yeah. nervous system and stuff like that. And so, so I, like I, as, as a coach educator now, that's probably my more kind of my, my main focus now. Um, I, I, I'm an NCCP learning facilitator. So I, I teach, um, three of the seven, um, comp dev learning modules, learning pathways for like candy games, coach kind of thing. Okay. So one of the, one of the modules I teach is, is, um, prevention and recovery. And we, we talk a lot about training load. We talk about the difference between overreaching yeah. and overtraining. So overreaching is kind of planned. It's mm -hmm. like you have to push your body to a certain level to then back off and recover. Yeah. Um, but when you're overreaching, overreaching, overreaching with no real planned recovery, that's when you're walking and hitting that danger zone of overtraining. So when I teach that module, I, I always make it a priority to educate the, the, the coaches that are in the room about what does it mean to overreach without proper planned recovery. Um, and like, that is my, that's my takeaway for these coaches is like, you need to be smart as a coach to make sure that you are looking out for your athletes. It's not about winning. It's about making sure that they can show up to practice the next day continuously. <laughs> yeah. I say it like, I guess a good sort of, uh, example or whatever for overreaching is like you're getting your body pushing it to that point where your performance starts to decrease because your recovery may have exceeded it a little bit but then as soon as you notice that starting to occur maybe the next week you just start deloading and basically take a recovery week or two weeks however long it takes to get your nervous system and your peripheral peripheral tissues like fully recovered and yeah. then you can go back in the following week and be stronger. But if you try to be like, oh, shit, I'm getting weaker. I need to train more because I'm getting weaker. And you're not acknowledging the fact that you're overreaching. Then, well, like you were saying, you overreach, overreach, overreach. Then eventually you're going to overtrain. So you kind of yeah. have to check the ego at the door. If your workouts are consistently getting worse and worse, there's probably something wrong. Um, and if it's not training hard enough, then... I feel like the type of people who are going to be pushing that far aren't the type of people who aren't training hard enough. You know what I mean? Cause sometimes like, Oh, maybe totally. I'm just not training hard enough. Yeah. Your mindset probably would tell you whether 
otherwise. Because if you're this yeah. driven, you're probably training adequately or too much. Yeah, um, and the great thing now is, that there, again, going back to technology, there's so many pieces of equipment, whether it's wearable or or survey based, that you can be using to uh, to monitor a lot of that stuff. So again, where endurance athletics is is kind of my specialty, um, heart rate reserve as an example, or frequently measuring blood lactate re like response to different types of tests. Um, what about uh, heart rate variability? Do you use that? Yeah. So I like the, the watch that I have, um, I've got a polar vantage V. So there's like some built in heart rate variability measurement tools within that. Um, and obviously that's, that's a more expensive unit. You can get different things using like your, an app on your phone to make it less reliable, but still yeah. gives you the kind of the general information. And then another way of, of even doing it, which it's not necessarily measuring heart rate variability, but you're looking at similar responses, but it's called the Rusco test. So okay. if you, if you do this test on a continuous basis, you start off first thing in the morning, you wake up, um, you're still lying prone. You've got a heart rate monitor on, you're looking at your resting heart rate. And then you stand up, you watch your heart rate spike, and then you continue standing and let your heart rate kind of come down and then your, your new, new standing resting, if you will. Okay. Um, and if you do that continuously, day after day after day after day, taking into account what you've done for exercise that day, um, you'll, you'll see fluctuations from the resting to the peak to the new standing. So you can actually predict when injury is going to happen or when you are going to get sick or when you need an extra day of recovery. Um, and it's not, it's not a difficult test to do, but not enough athletes are monitoring training load to be able yeah. to actually use that information. And it's so simple. Um, so in my 34, 14 class, I'm going to be teaching this year, fitness testing and prescription. Um, I'll be introducing a lot of that stuff to my students so that they can start to, to learn more and explore some of that stuff because you can't learn everything in your four-year degree. But if yeah. you have a professor that kind of feeds you little pieces and maybe sparks some interest, this stuff is so accessible online. It just, it just takes someone to push them in the right direction. Nice. Yeah. I might be in that class, honestly. Oh, good. 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 I, Come on like in. all of my uh, like second and third years crammed into this, like this year. Yeah. And then I'll have like a few fourth year ones like after this year just to finish up probably here and cool. there. Because, uh, yeah, I'm applying to physio this this year, this coming year. All right. So hopefully that goes well. Um, on the grind. <laughs> but so, yeah, I should be in quite a few. I think half my classes are third year classes. Nice. I'm teaching yeah. 34, 19 in the winter, okay. um, which is that? basically – so that's normally Derek Kimberly teaches it, um, but he's going to be on sabbatical. So that's uh, what is it called? It's like basically applied exercise physiology, but more okay. from like a human performance standpoint. So it's, right. it's pretty heavy in the lab component. Um, okay. So hoping that all these restrictions lift come January. Cause I don't, I don't know how I'm going to do that one. <laughs> yeah. It might have to be uh, postponed. Or yeah, I figure out online, but yeah, we'll figure it out. Great. You want yeah. in person. Um, okay. Like what, cause whoop is also good. I'm not going to get into like different brands and stuff, but like similar to what you're saying, like you can get these fitness trackers to like better 
more closely aid like recovery and stuff. I was watching yes. one video and this guy was saying like, basically like clockwork, if he had two really low recovery days, like, so his heart rate variability is uh, super low and his heart resting heart rate super high, mm -hmm. his nervous system indicating like shitty recovery. And he knew he wasn't training those days, like, or the days before those days, almost every time he would get sick, like the next day or the day after. And it was basically just showing him like when his body was dealing with this, you know, another stressor, another like invader, basically. Uh, I thought yeah. that was really cool because it, it's showing you so much that you just couldn't know if you didn't have it yeah you can like you can feel your body and read your body and that's definitely really good skill i think to have but like to know you're going to get sick you can't really feel that until the symptoms start happening totally and when i'm when i'm working with athletes now um it's not i i usually i usually work with like one to three athletes a year just because of the, the time commitment but i do enjoy it um but i i have to limit it just because of all my other things i've got going on in life um, but a big part of the onboarding process when I'm taking a new, a new athlete on is teaching them all this stuff, because if they're not willing to track and quantify and, and take that part on, like they have, there has to be some accountability. And, and I yeah. consider this a huge part of that. They have to be willing to take that on and to be able to communicate with me where they are in terms of, you know what, today's not a good day to push. Um, and then obviously like I'm, I'm checking in, we use training peaks and other platforms to be able to see it, but it has to come from, it has to come from the athlete because as yeah. a coach, when you've got multiple athletes and multiple things that you're training, you're doing yourself, um, you just don't have time to go through all these data points on any given day. So an athlete needs to be able to take that on. And it's, it's, I, man, I, I make it mandatory. It's a requirement that if you're going to work with me and I'm going to work with you, you have to have a certain piece of equipment. Um, and a lot of that comes from, again, monitoring and tracking training load for the purpose of their own health and safety, preventing yeah. overtraining. Yeah, sweet. And that's a good way, I think, of doing it. I also completely agree. Like, there's a point where, especially if you're working with athletes and people who are trying to achieve like super high performance, it's different than like, if you're helping someone with body composition, who's like, you're really dealing with like their ability to adhere to something and like stick with it, mm -hmm. uh, which it kind of, accountability is super, like super important for that too. But like, if you're someone trying to optimize all this stuff as a coach, you don't want to have to waste time, like making sure they're not eating crap food. Like you want them to be doing all of that. You're there for like, tell them what to eat give them that meal plan or whatever if you're a nutritionist or like you know doing the programming side of thing for training but you want to give them that you know you have the knowledge base to build it you give it to them they're going to do it you don't want to like have to be like okay this is going to make it the easiest way because of you know you just don't like eating broccoli you know you want someone yeah. who's like motivated enough to like okay i might not like broccoli but gonna i'm gonna eat it anyways because it's gonna optimize me I think like there's a place for helping everyone. Um, but as a coach, you kind of have to decide like, okay, I want to work with these people because they're going to be super motivated and we're actually going to be able to focus on this top 10%. That's the really fun, cool stuff. And not yeah. this other 70% of stuff that like 
it's going to get you a lot of the results, but it's also kind of the more boring stuff to do as a coach, in my opinion. Totally. Like, I think all that more advanced stuff is a lot more fun and cool to get into optimizing. Um, not to say that 70% isn't important because it's obviously essential. But... Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> I think yeah. that's, that's kind of, that's the difference where, where I am now uh, versus when I first started. Cause when you're first starting it, you take on anything and everything because if that's your, if that's your, like, that's how you're paying the bills. You, you gotta, you take anything and everything. Um, and now I'm super selective on who I work with because I, I can be the world's biggest cheerleader. Um, but I'm, I'm not there to hold your hand. Um, I can motivate you. I can kick your ass when needed, but I'm not there to knock on your bedroom window at 5 30 AM because there's, I've prescribed a practice. If you're, if you're not willing to put the time in, then sorry, I'll, I'll pass you off to someone else. Um, yeah. And not saying that I'm too good for that by any means. I just don't have time. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's your time. It's, like your time is valuable. Like you're going to work with the people that you want to work with. And if someone's not going to put in the work, then what's the point? Work with someone who's going to crush it. Totally. I totally yeah. agree. Um, so speaking of just working with like in coaching people, say you have like an endurance athlete come to you, covers yep. all the bases. We'll assume they're doing, willing to do whatever it takes. They're dialed in. You're not worrying about them eating McDonald's every day. You know, you got a good <laughs> candidate here. You got a good person coming in ready to put in the work. What sure. sort of your standard, like training regime not obviously you don't have to get specific but like the types of equipment you use what you test how you measure like how frequent you you'll measure improvements you know adjustments and like um yeah like if you had someone coming with coming to you to do an ultra marathon or something yeah. of that nature what would you what would the general sort of idea be with all the equipment you use and stuff? sure yeah so probably, probably the best example would be um would be like a an Ironman or a long, a long distance triathlete. They, Cause I, I often get requests um, for people wanting to know about what kind of services I provide and, and cost and all that stuff. Um, so to, for me to work with an athlete now, um, and for those who are not familiar with a long course triathlete or triathlon, um, an Ironman, perfect example, it starts with uh, like a, a 3.8 kilometer swim. So 4k swim, and then you're hopping on the bike, you're doing 180K, um, and then you're finishing off with a marathon. So a lot of, uh, of first-time triathletes that are attempting this, um, if they're smart, they'll say their goal is to just finish it in the 17-hour cutoff. Um, those who are a bit more motivated say they'd like to do it in under 12 hours, and those who really have no idea what they're getting into say they want to do it in under 10. Um, not really recognizing that most pros do it in sub eight and they train their entire life to do that. But regardless, um, when I take on an athlete, I, I, I do an intake. I ask them their, their questions, like, what do you want to get out of this? Why are you doing this? Uh, who are you doing this for? And a lot of the times it comes down to, to weight loss, which is fine. Um, but I would, probably suggest that they maybe start with like a 5k run or a 10k run or do a grand fondo bike or have you ever done a swim meet 
just get them to break down the individual disciplines before they dive headfirst into committing to the eight hundred, nine hundred, one thousand dollar race registration, uh, which for the most part is non-refundable. <laughs> I learned that the hard way. Um, yeah, so we we kind of we start them off. There's an intake. I ask them a bunch of questions. And then we start getting into the lifestyle pieces. Um, so height, weight, BMI, body composition. Um, if they're setting unrealistic goals, usually I can just pinch them on the back of the tricep and be like, you know what, maybe we should re reevaluate your goals based on just this one simple pinch. <laughs> uh, and we're talking body composition here. Yeah. Uh, the best analogy is if you've got a, if you've got a wheelbarrow and you're trying to move it from point A to point B and it's a heavy load, what's the one thing you can do to get from point A to point B quicker? Make it lighter lighten the load right yeah. so if you're carrying a lot of excess weight and you've got these lofty goals maybe we should take a year and really prime the body and prepare it to be able to handle that load and we haven't even gotten into like tissue loading like if your knees can't handle it or your quads haven't if you've never done a squat whatever it is we got to get your body ready to start training and preparing like an athlete um so once we kind of get through that and I've, I've taken them on then we start looking at the equipment um, so swimming's pretty obvious. You need to have a wetsuit. You need to have access to a pool, which in, right now is not possible because there's no pools open. Um, but in the summertime, you can be hitting the lake. Uh, if you're if they're a really um, privileged athlete, maybe they have their own their own pool at home. I've worked with a few athletes that have an infinity pool, which is obviously super helpful. Swimming's probably the the, the least of my concern, though. Um, because again, motivation's high. They've got all the, the bells and whistles, but really they just need to get in the water. When it comes to testing, there's just some simple basic things we can do. Like what's your 100 meter splits? What are your 400, 800? What's your 1,000? Um, have you ever swam more than 1,000 meters? That's, that's a basic question too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Once we get into, into the run, things start to pick up a little bit because they need to have some sort of a, a wearable piece, whether it's Garmin or Polar, but usually a, a, a watch that can measure at, at the very minimum heart rate and, and pace. Um, new technology now we're looking at like measuring power from the wrist um, or there's different products out there like Stride is another, another wearable technology, but it's basically just a little pod that goes on the top of your shoe and it takes into account cadence um, <clears throat> and then time and contact with the ground, but it can, it can generate a, a power measurement. Okay, yeah. <clears throat> so testing there, we would, we would probably do some sort of a, like a, a direct or indirect VO2 max test, whether we're using the full on metabolic heart or we're just doing blood lactate, but we're, we're producing some sort of data to then be able to repeat point A to point B and, we can look at changes in, in pace, changes in stride, changes in heart rate, um, and most basic, changes in RPE. Because if I can get you cranking out like seven and a half, eight, nine and a half, ten miles per hour, how does that feel? And if it feels shitty today, hopefully in three months' time, it feels less shitty. <laughs> and your, your form improves. So those are all things that we, we would be looking at there. Um, you said, uh, sorry, just to, before we move too far from it, yeah, yeah, you said yeah. lactate, uh, testing or like blood testing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So are you using like, uh, I'm studying for my CSCS right now. So okay, fresh. Um, the different like testing for like aerobic capacity and like endurance capacity and you got it, yep. for that. Um, there's like the lactate threshold yep. that the person can be at. And then there's also VO2 max. Mm-hmm. So do you prefer lactate testing and like, how do you kind of particularly, how would you use that? Like when yeah, you're so assessing it? The way I've, I've been taught and personally trained and coached and, and now as a coach, I continue to do it. Um, but I use, it's just a, it's a graded exercise test. So if we're, if we're talking about on the treadmill, um, yeah. everything's usually done in miles per hour, just because that's where a lot of the, the tests have come from. Um, so when we're talking about lactate threshold, what we're really talking about is the, the energy systems. So at yeah. what point does an athlete start to kind of move through their aerobic threshold into a sub-threshold or, or anaerobic threshold, LT1, LT2? So is it like, um, it's like the buildup of lactate in the bloodstream to the point where your body's not uh, getting rid of it as quickly as you're producing it? Yeah, that's that's probably the easiest way to explain it. Once okay. basically once lactate starts to accumulate in the system, um, we start metabolizing different substrates. Okay. So going from fat as a primary fuel source during the, the earlier or low intensity, and once that intensity starts to pick up, that's when we start to almost flipping a switch, and now we're moving into a more carbohydrate uh, okay. substrate utilization. So we can actually, by using blood lactate, so a small finger prick, we can start to see where those changes are starting to occur. And then we can correlate them to either pace or heart rate or power. Um, so we measure all that information, we graph it, we give it back to them. And then most importantly, we explain it. <laughs> yeah. So would you <laughs> say, of- um, just uh, on the blood lactate, when you're getting to that point of like, maybe more maximal effort work, especially with like a longer distance running or biking. Um, mm. You're switching over to like more anaerobic glycolysis because the oxygen supply is dropping so much. Is that why it happens? Yeah, it's more, it's not so much oxygen because you're obviously you're still upright. You're still breathing. Even if you were measuring SpO2 or oxygen saturation, yeah. the levels are still high. Like you might drop to like 98% down from a hundred. Okay. So it's, it's more, I guess it's more the rate that oxygen can be delivered to the right. peripheral tissues. Right. Okay. <laughs> Excuse me. Dry air here. Um, yeah. So it's, it's more looking at again, like, um, at what point does your, your body switch or flip from using fat as a primary fuel source into stored carbohydrate? Okay. And, and again, that, that tends to kind of transition with an increase in intensity as well. Because right. if you think about like a marathon, a bit of an overlap too, right? Absolutely. You're never just utilizing one or the other. There's, yeah. there's a bit of a, a transition phase. But when you think about a marathoner, they want to be able to run at the highest pace they can comfortably sustain for 42 kilometers. Yeah. Um, and if they run too fast, they're basically burning matches. So they're tapping into their carbohydrate stores. You're going to get a spike in lactate. And over time, their ability to recover and bring it back down becomes diminished. Um, and then you, you see a, a decrease in performance. 
Okay. So you need to be able to know where these numbers are, know where your thresholds are happening and own it, control it, train it and improve it. Right. <laughs> um, and there's too many coaches out there that are just kind of, they're charging an arm and a leg. They're, they're charging a lot of money for their services, but they're not testing. They're not providing meaningful data for their athletes to then use. And they're not monitoring or quantifying training load. Right. So in the end, they're basically just making a lot of money off people and taking some sort of plan that they've either created blindly or taken it off of somewhere else. And they're now feeding it to an athlete. Okay. And so, um, related to that, so we'll resume with um, you get the data, you explain it to them. Uh, I'm assuming it's very similar because it's all about training load and like, overreach functionally overreaching not overtraining and all this stuff um yeah but i know with like lifting weights and i'm sure it carries over somewhat similarly i'm sure the training modalities you use will be obviously different but when you're training in the gym you don't if you go in say week one right and some people get impatient they want to just crush it super hard they're taking every set to failure and then by the end of week two, the recovery, their fatigue has exceeded the recovery so quickly that they hadn't even been through that phase long enough to make sustainable strength gains. So right. then they're basically taking one step forward, two steps back instead of doing maybe like a six week phase or mesocycle starting like very low fatigue, not taking everything to failure. And then near that fifth, six week, then you can really blast yourself and then take that deload week. So like yeah. for running, when you're sort of maybe like getting someone functionally overreaching, does that look like maybe earlier in the week doing like a, a bigger run and then maybe later in the week you have like more like a moderate and then a recovery run? Or is it, is that roughly kind of what it sounds like? I don't know, but. Yeah. So I, I'm a big subscriber to like the 80, 20 concept. Okay. So 80% of what you do, total training volume, whether it's for a week, a month, a mesocycle, a macro cycle, a year, if you will, 80% of what you do, total training load should be at zone two. So aerobic threshold or less meaning easy or extremely easy. 20% should be hard and extremely hard. Okay. But when you look at the mass populations, they're spending about 75% of their time in somewhat hard right. <laughs> or not quite easy, not quite hard. So in the end, and we, when you translate that back to the energy systems, when we go easy or really easy, it's fat. When you go hard or extremely hard, it's carbohydrates. Carbs, yeah. okay. And when you're in between, so not quite hard, somewhat hard, it's this mixed bag of fat and carbohydrate. Right. And if you spend 85 or eight, sorry, 75% of your time in that, that zone, we call that zone three or junk zone, garbage zone. Okay. You're not, you're not getting any of the training benefit from the low end and you're not getting any of the training benefit from the top end. And then you get frustrated, so you put more training time in, and then that's where overuse and injury occurs. Okay. So it's not, it's not rocket science. 80% of what you do should be easy. 20% yeah. should be hard. 
So that'd be like one day a week you have a maybe super intense run and then the other six days of the week you're kind of just doing easy runs basically. Well, so this is where it gets complicated, right? Okay. This is the art. <laughs> All right. so, yeah. It's about, and everyone's different, obviously. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And again, what you think is easy might be my heart. Exactly. Right? I was going to so just, it, I was just going to say that about like, okay, well, an ultra marathon runner's easy day would probably ruin the average Joe totally. to work up to a 10 K. Like it's all yep. relative to the person. And they're yeah. Stuff. So when you're, when you're training for a 50 or a hundred or 160 K trail race, um, your easy days could vary anywhere from like a two hour easy run to an eight hour easy run. Um, and easy for me again, could be very different for someone who's never run a 5k in terms of pace and intensity and heat and acclimatization and elevation. So it just, it, it, it yeah, individualization is, is key. But if we look at like, uh, if we look at a marathoner who's trying to qualify for Boston, for example, um, cause that's a pretty, everyone tries to achieve that. Yeah. Right. That's, that's pretty common. So Sundays you might wake up and do a long run, long, slow distance. LSD is the, the acronym we'll use. Um, again, it could be anywhere from like, 15k up to 35k depending on where they are in their in their their training cycle mondays would generally be a recovery day so as a coach who comes from a a multi-sport background i usually recommend my runners on monday to either go for a swim or go for an easy bike ride Uh, we don't want more impact there's no such thing as a recovery run okay i hate that phrase a recovery run there's no such thing um, there's more impact on like the shins totally and the and absolutely and everything. Okay. absolutely and and again if you're dedicated to your sport you will listen and 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 work off of science <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so monday might be some sort of like again recovery workout um tuesday morning depending on how they're feeling um maybe i have them in the gym lifting heavy or maybe they're doing some plyometrics or some calisthenics or whatever it is, always ending with a core session as well. Tuesday night, they might be hitting and doing like a fartlek session, which is kind of a speed play, um, not really structured, but they're, they're bringing their, their heart rate up into like that zone four, zone five. They're touching. Right, isn't, uh, isn't that like you'll do like something super low and then like kind of alternate it with something a bit more yep. fast-paced? Yeah. So the best example would be like you go for a run downtown Charlottetown and you're, you're sprinting between telephone poles. Right. Yeah. And then on the second telephone pole, you would do like an easy recovery, bring the heart rate down and then you go again. So there's no like, there's no real structure to it, but the idea is that your heart rate's kind of doing, doing this up and down, up and down. Okay. Um, Very different from like a track workout, which would be focused on like 10 by 400s or, five by 100s interspersed with some 200s or whatever it is and then like a prescribed recovery in between that's very much you're going there with a plan so yeah tuesday evening might do a fartlek wednesday morning we might again do another recovery run or bike or swim Um, or depending on where they are i might have them go do an easy 10k run um next day we're working at wednesday um I might have them either back in the gym lifting heavy or light or doing a high intensity workout, depending on, on where they're at. And then that evening I might have them 
who knows that could be track night and then generally thursdays i i, I always try to get in like some sort of interval workout uh, ideally not running just again to be able to spread the, the training load so biking is a great way of doing it um and if they have any kind of way of monitoring power output on their bike that that's an ideal way of doing it so all these smart trainers and platforms like zwift or ruby or trainer road these are all things that they're paid subscription um but it's a way to apply a training load and and hit it and you can be factoring heart rate power cadence all that stuff so it's all valuable feedback it's all data um and then towards the later of the week then we might throw in a complete recovery day like fridays beer and pizza no running whatever it is off the feet off the feet whatever it is um and then we're preparing for our, our, our next long run which is sunday so saturday we might have them do a hike or or just a complete again easy easy run but not hard um in terms of so, like recovery um <clears throat> while we're kind of on that um like do you ever like recommend like sauna or hot tub versus like ice baths because i know like there's recovery and then there's adaptation and obviously cold exposures got a ton of benefits and heat exposure has they both have their place for sure um, yeah but like ice bath i guess if you're taking a lot of damage it might help you like keep going but a lot of like the adaptation would be coming from like sort of that inflammatory response um so like do you have any sort of protocol of using ice or heat or is that kind of like, yeah there's again you, you can argue the research any any way right now like there's there's so much yeah. stuff out there uh, i've been following along with uh aaron horshig quite a bit from squat university and he's got this whole new kind of movement against ice when it comes to injury yeah. um but when it comes to recovering so many from any kind of like endurance workout right. uh, ice is uncomfortable <laughs> it's never it's never it never feels good and during, but then there's some huge benefits that come with it. I, I, I've always just experimented with all of them. Um, it totally depends on the individual. And again, you can argue the research anyway. One yeah. thing that's really lasted for me, um, because I, I have a, a lot of um, a lot of varicose veins, is compression. Okay. So people are using uh, the different like the the. I'm sure you've probably seen them before, but you can get these sleeves that you put your legs in and graduated compression or compression stockings, whatever it is. Yeah. Bringing your feet up the wall helps with venous return. Anything that's really going to help clear some of those metabolites and get the blood flowing back to the heart. Right. So whether that's heat, or cold or elevation or compression, you do what you got to do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, because it's like distinguishing also between like an acute injury and recovering from like an endurance thing is two different things totally acute injury first you know uh nicole mcclellan dr coke cokes yeah yeah she's like big into don't want to speak for her but prolotherapy and like you know the inflammation yeah, yeah. response is important for injuries like so why would you get rid of that natural inflammatory response exactly and that's that's kind of the squat university approach too. yeah but then that's yeah. not that's ex, that's not encompassing all icing is bad because like, totally. people jump on that a lot of the time they hear you say that one thing 
it's good for your immune function. It's good for a ton of other things. And like, like yeah. you're saying, like getting those metabolites out of there, all that like garbage, um, you know, metabolic waste from a, a long workout, good to clear it out and might mm -hmm. help you for the next one. So uh, like similar to like a cool down bike ride at the end of a, like a Exactly. And, and like, and I'm a big proponent for like foam rolling, um, all the mobility stuff. Even today, like I had the kids down at uh, Victoria Park in the pool, um, and while they were out playing around the playground, so I was in the pool with them, which is a bit cold, so that felt nice. Um, and I did a long bike ride yesterday, and then while they were at the park, I was using the back of the back of one of the benches as basically like a giant foam roller on my calves and soleus, and nice. felt horrible. Um, but just like, again, you got to break up that tissue. You got to yeah. get that garbage and junk out of there. So, and there's so many ways you can do it, but it's, again, you, yeah. can, you can argue any and every way until you're blue in the face based on research. Yeah. Um, also when people say like foam rolling, cause research, a lot of research come out just saying like, Oh, the only evidence is for like delayed onset muscle soreness and it might not improve mobility and blah, 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 blah. Like, okay. Well, does someone feel good after they do it? Does it make their workout feel better? Like if that happens, then it's totally worth it. Just cause it's not like totally. necessarily as good as like dynamic or static stretching in terms of increasing flexibility It's doing other good stuff. So you don't need people. I find it like they want to discredit things because they're just like, Oh, well research, new research. Let's discredit this thing. Where it's like, even if it is a placebo for people, placebo is real they feel different yeah, they feel it so absolutely like take advantage of everything that works for you if it's working keep doing it yep yeah yep absolutely sweet um so we kind of went through your like general week there uh you're collecting data so what about maybe like focusing on kind of we got that general idea peaking like are you focusing on peaking an athlete for like you know the race is coming out that's pretty standard i think is getting them in the best peak performance for that time window yeah whatever it is so how do you kind of approach that yeah so again if we're talking about an ironman athlete it's you're looking at it's it's a balance between their acute training load versus a chronic training load um, or fitness versus form. So when we're using platforms like training peaks, for example, again, it's measured, it's, it's looking at heart rate. It's looking at power output. It's looking at expenditure. The idea is that we, we want to get an athlete where they're, they're overreaching. They're, they're peaking, if you will. Um, let's say two weeks out from their big event, gives them time to recover for the, the week out. And then basically we'll do a primer workout a day or two before. And then by the time they get to that start line, they're ready to explode in a good okay. way. <laughs> so they had just like, they had just maybe functionally overreached a bit, deloaded a bit and yep. now they've super compensated. So they've gained more than to where they previously were. And you kind of, you're priming their body with a workout to kind of, you know, reinitiate the nervous system and like get their body. Totally. Like, okay this is what we've got to do, but not yep. fatigue them from that workout. So just, and so that. this is a complication though, is that we're talking about three individual sports here. Right. So we got to get an athlete 
ready to swim their fastest 4k swim their strongest 180 kilometer bike ride and then get through a marathon with the least amount of damage possible um it's hard and keep the motivation high (laughs) there must be also like differences between people as always but with like maybe the way they're pacing different events based on their strengths and weaknesses so like if they know like swims kill them maybe pace it out more or like whatever's like you know pace the one out that's going to kill you more and then really crush the ones you're good at is that kind of like a a balance you kind of try to work with is like okay we know you're super good at biking Mm -hmm. but your running is kind of beats you up like because they're also in order so that plays a role too and like yeah and each, each sport um really plays a big part of it too right so swimming for example um if you're not a strong swimmer i always i always work with my athletes to basically find the biggest whale and hang on because you can draft right? right when you're in the water you can just get on the back of someone and that that cuts down on drag um, you still got to keep a high like swim stroke. You got to be able to breathe bilateral so that you're not then cramped up on one side. Um, but basically the swim for a lot of triathletes, because that's not necessarily their, their strongest point is, is survival. Like once yeah. they get their feet back on land, okay, the anxiety's down, they're, they're ready to go. Um, and a, and a triathlon swim is very different than like a swimmer swim too. Because you're using your, your arms quite a bit more than your legs because you want to save your legs for the bike. Oh, okay. Right? So if you've got a really strong kick and you're fried after 3.5K or 3.8K, yeah. what do you think is going to happen on the bike? It's right. not going to be pretty. Yeah. So we've got to train our swimmers to do a lot more gliding. Um, higher elbows just makes for a more efficient swim. Then they get on the bike. And the way the bike is set up is it usually the, the saddle is moved quite a bit forward so that they're actually using more hamstring engagement than quadriceps. Right. Yeah. I was like, I was just about to ask a question. Like, do you set up bike differently to, to save? The Absolutely. Run? Yeah. Yeah. So it's moved forward so that there's more pulling coming from the hamstrings and your, your body weight is generally further ahead of the handlebars so that it can get you into a more, a lower aerodynamic position. Um, unlike the swim though, in a triathlon in a long course triathlon, you're not allowed to draft. Um, oh. so you usually have to keep like, I don't know if it's like a school bus length or whatever it is, it's some silly rule. Um, but you're basically, you're on your own 180 K and you're on your own. So you need to make sure that your bike is properly tuned, properly fitted and that you've got a, a really good stroke analysis down so that you know when to push, when to pull. Um, and you also have the, have the mobility to be able to get into an aero position and hold it for three, four, five, six hours, depending on how long it takes you to do 180 K. And then you're onto the run. <laughs> so you've exhausted your upper body, your hamstrings are toast, and yeah. now you're completely relying on your quadriceps and hips to get through this. And you would be amazed to see how many marathoners or Ironman men, women, triathletes can't do a single pistol squat. Their knees are just wrecked. 
they just they're they have no no glute strength oh it's just in general like unbelievable oh, i didn't even think about so that. when i work with my athletes i get them to lift heavy at least once every two weeks yeah and then um, that increased strength and power output is raising their ability to oh, it's all this injury prevention right yeah and so many triathletes are terrified to get under the barbell they're afraid to go to the gym but they'll just run their body into the ground. Yeah. I'm like, but you don't have to. Like, just just lift. Yeah, lifting's sweet. <laughs> Lifting's <Yeah>. awesome. <laughs> it, it, it. But it's 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 a different mindset. So, yeah. so really, in a triathlon or in any multi sport, like there's there's swimming, there's biking, there's running, there's weight training, and you have to do it all. Yeah, and you have to get ready to peak on any like on a particular day. So it's yeah. it's a lot of it's a lot of waves trying to get all those things to uh, to align and fit properly. Sweet. Um, to close <laughs> things off, well, start to I guess uh, I got a couple questions of just. So for me, like, what if I was to come to you right now? My main goal is hypertrophy uh, and yep. like re- low back rehab. But theoretically, I'm weighing 195 pounds right now. Yeah. If I came to you and I was like, I want to do a triathlon right now. Um, what would you suggest? And what do you think the first priority, like for someone like my body type, you know me decently well, like yeah, roughly yeah. how I'm training, like mostly just lifting weights. I did a bit, of, I ran a little bit ago, but 195 pounds, mostly doing like phosphagen and uh anaerobic training not a lot of aerobic yeah. endurance built up what was don't have to go through a long thing but what would you say in general to that and like what what would be first the starting off, point first off is can you swim <laughs> yeah um because because if you can't swim you're you're dead like you're yeah. literally dead so i sink yeah and also i can swim but i'm not like the best swimmer but i can yeah like so in a race you're you're going to be wearing a wetsuit so that helps um but a a wetsuit will just that will keep you afloat you still got to move right yeah so i i I usually do a lot of um in the early part i i do a lot of assessment stuff in the water so we look at why can't you float and is it because of body positioning so it's learning how to press your chest down because when you do that your legs lift. keep your lungs filled yeah yeah and then again it's it's when you are swimming what's your elbow doing is it a high elbow are you doing a finger drag are you swimming bilateral do you panic in the water um if i brought you out to a lake and kicked you off the boat and then drove away would you would you freak out um because again 3.8 kilometer swim is a long a long way yeah, <laughs> and the moment that you get on that stand-up paddleboard in the middle of a race, and they they move you, you're you're done. You're you're disqualified. You can hang on, but they're not allowed to move. Um, okay. So the swim is is obviously a so, critical part. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then from there, we would start looking at your your aerobic endurance, your aerobic capacity. Can you like can you run for more than five k? I did 10k a few weeks. There you ago go. For like yeah, five, yeah. five, 
10, 515 per kilometer. Yeah. So like, aerobic. A couple of years ago, I did, uh, I was sauning a lot and I swear this is why my cardiovascular conditioning was so good was the sauna because I was barely doing cardio. I was just training, but I was sauning for like 20, 30 minutes every single day. Right. And I, and I did like, I did a 15 K at 210 pounds without training boy. for like five thirty. Yeah. Per kilometer. Yeah. And I might've mentioned that in another podcast episode. So people are probably going to be like, get some new material. But anyway, so like, <laughs> there's definitely some there through this condition and being in shape and like lifting weights, but it's not like yeah. anything to ride home about. Yeah. So yeah, I would say like, again, swimming, swimming for, for personal safety is a big one. Even before we, we got into the aerobic stuff, I, I would, I would do some, um, some tissue tolerance stuff. I'd look at like, again, mobility. Can you, can you tie your shoes without back pain? Cause you mentioned low back pain is an issue yeah. right now. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that you can do there. Like FMS assessment, if you're into that, um, or go see a physiotherapist. What's who that? Does a lot of FMS stuff. assessment? Uh, functional movement screening. screening. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So looking at like, again, can you do, can you lift a high knee and step over some sort of a barrier without yeah. any sway or uh, yeah, a, a lot of it's just joint mobility, um, yeah. pain-free range of motion kind of thing. But again, if you're requiring or wanting your body to go through this like high level training regime of day in, day out, you got to make sure your tissue can handle that. Yeah. Um, and probably and, also and be okay with losing some gains. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. even like I've worked with some, some runners who, and I'll switch kind of gears here for a moment and talk with the marathon. They come in and they're like, I, I can run a sub 20 minute 5k, but my marathon is like four hours. I'm like, okay, well you might have to give up a little bit of that speed, your speedy 5k to start building on your marathon. Yeah. Um, so I remember working with this one individual who his goal was to qualify for Boston. He was used to running like a 20 minute 5k and halfway through like a six month training program. He's like, my 5k is now at 23 minutes. I'm like, yeah, that's kind of expected. Like we haven't really focused on speed really in the last several weeks. We've been focusing on building your, your endurance, but I'm like, when was the last time you ran a 32 kilometer run? at a five minute per kilometer pace. Like he was worried about, he could no longer sustain four minute kilometers for five minutes or yeah. sorry, 20 minutes. But here he is running five minute kilometers for 32 of them. I'm like, yeah. you, you get, there's some, you got to give up on a little bit of speed for the, for the endurance side. And yeah. by the end of it, when he was qualifying for Boston, we got his 5k time back down to like, I think it was like 1930. So it was actually faster than where right. it was, but he had to give it up for a little bit to focus on the other things. Yeah. It's definitely going back more efficient when he started training for speed, he had built up his aerobic capacity so much that totally just could probably mainly just focus on speed. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's challenging. Cause when you start working and a lot of these athletes are type a type a personalities, right? Yeah. They've, they've got things in their head. They're so dialed in. They've got a routine. Um, a lot of them are physicians or accountants, so they're they're used to just having things 
done the way it is. And it takes a lot of effort for them to hire a coach to put all their faith into someone who they are now paying to make some pretty important decisions for them. And until they start to see the evidence going in the direction that they want it to, they're always skeptical and they're always hesitant. Um, So it's an interesting, like there's definitely a psychology piece there for sure. Right. Sweet. Um, What would you say? uh, Okay. Wait, first um, to touch on that, (laughs) I think it's said uh, specific adaptations uh, based on imposed demand. So like the body will adapt to the stress it's put under. Mm -hmm. So kind of like if I was to want to do a endurance event, I basically have to, you got to dial it into a specific goal. So specificity and you got to kind of train for that goal. So I would have to accept the fact that I'm going to lose probably strength and some size in order to adapt more towards aerobic, um, conditioning and muscular endurance it might not be insane but i would probably have to cut some weight down even just for like efficiency of doing that type of thing i I would say like this the size would definitely go i would i would hate to say that you would lose some strength like i i guess if you were to look at what your your one rm bench or back squat or overhead press or whatever it is your numbers would probably change a little bit because you're not lifting as much because you're putting more emphasis on, on running or cycling or swimming or whatever it is. Um, but in terms of functional strength, I would like to say that that would maintain ideally. Yeah. Uh, Cause the moment you start to lose that, that's again, where injury creeps in. Right. Right. Yeah. But in and terms I of, I guess you could introduce like continuing some very low volume, high intensity sets of like your big lifts just to maintain it. And like without, yeah inducing a lot of fatigue and just think like neural activation plays a big part like when you're fatigued and your muscles are no longer touching or sorry not touching they're no longer communicating with each other (laughs) that's when that that background of of heavy training heavy lifting definitely can save an athlete um i see it i've been to so many ironman finish lines and to see these people who you can tell have never picked up a dumbbell in their life. Um, their posture went from bad to like horrible. Yeah. Especially after 17 hours of fatigue inducing exercise. So those that are maintaining any kind of strength, um, or working on strength throughout their program, they're the ones that are finishing with a smile and they're not crippled for two, three months post race. True. Yeah. That's a good point. You got to have the strength to just bear it bone density and all that other stuff that comes with resistance training too. Um, cool. Well, I got some, I I don't even have them written down, but I remember them rapid fire questions for you. Sure. All right. Ready? Yep. What is one book you would recommend for everybody to read? Uh, Oh, geez. I think if you're if you're an endurance athlete, like Born to Run is a is a is a classic one. Okay. Um, yeah, That's it's, good. it's yeah. funny. It, 
it's fine. I know it's rapid fire, but it's been so long since I've had time to actually read a book for pleasure. Yeah. Um, Cokes actually recently gave me a recommendation. So I, don't, I can't even give you the title because it's in an email. I haven't looked right. at it yet. Yeah. Uh, but now that I'm done at school, life's kind of slowed down a bit. There you go. Yeah. I find that yeah. when like, I'm doing my textbook right now, I was reading leisurely up until studying six hours a day. And then I'm like, okay, I'm reading textbook six hours. I don't really want to read. I will just want to watch Netflix now. And, and honestly, the last four years for me, if I had a spare moment when I was not in class or teaching a class or doing an assignment, or spending time with kids, um, it was working on my thesis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I got it done in four years with a family. But yeah, I haven't had time to pick up a book and it seems so, like a lifetime. And what was the book again? Your recommendation? Uh, Born to Run. Born, Born to Run. Sweet. Okay. Yeah, it is a great, great read. If you, um, if there was one thing you wish you knew 10 years ago, what would it be? <laughs> uh, if I wish I had known 10 years ago. Um, oh, man. I just think where I was 10 years ago during my master's. Uh, Maybe recover. <laughs> yeah, chill out. Yeah. Like it's if you want to be here for the long haul, you got to chill out because yeah. you can only run on such a overdrive status for a short period of time. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, and it's just, yeah, like there's so many things in life that are not important. Like yeah. that finish don't, line. It's not important. The small stuff. Totally. Sweet. Chill, um, chill out. What is uh, one daily habit uh, you think would like anyone could benefit from doing implementing just one little thing? Mobility, Mobility. get up and stretch, move your body. Sweet. Um, if you could be remembered a thousand years from now for one thing, what would it be? That I was a dad first. Good. Um, and if you could live forever, would you, why or why not? Nope. <laughs> ah, there's so many things happening in the world right now. And I'm, I'm terrified for what like next week has to offer, let alone next year or the next decade. Yeah. Um, fair enough. I'm in the same boat. I think life also is more important when it's not limited. Every movie about well, immortality says it's a curse. I think it would be eventually quality, not quantity. Yeah. Sweet. All right. Well, that is all of the rapid fires off the top of my head. So cool, man. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Hopefully you can get some good edits out of that. I'll probably just put it up raw. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks everyone for listening to the fifth episode of the podcast. Um, you can follow Jeff at team KSL on Instagram um, and if you're looking to inquire about any training or programming uh, or anything, you can contact Jeff through Jeff at KinesicSportLab.com. And I'll include that in the description with all the spelling. Um, so you can just check it out there. All right. Thanks for watching. Catch you next time.